This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. We are studying the Ten Commandments together, and we're studying them out of Exodus chapter 20. So if you had a Bible, if you brought a Bible, you can look on there, Exodus chapter 20. I uh, also want to let you know, at the beginning of this series, we made some books available out at our uh, resource center on the Ten Commandments. And uh, this book, uh, written in stone, The Ten Commandments in Today's Moral Crisis by uh, Philip Graham Riken, was not available. Two weeks ago, this book would cost you about 35 or 40 bucks uh, used because it was out of print. And so, not wanting to spend 40 bucks on a paperback, I borrowed one from a guy I know in Houston to go, so this has been my main source of study. I've just kept it a secret to you because I didn't think you wanted to go pay 40 bucks online to find it. It's been reprinted in the middle of our series, probably because of the amazing demand just from the series alone. I'm sure Crossway, or it's PNR. PNR said, wow, they're, they're studying the Ten Commandments at Grace Church. Reprint now. So I'm sure that's what happened. But anyway, it's back in print. So we got a few copies out at the uh, Resource Center for you uh, if you would like them in there, like, 10 bucks or whatever they cost us is what we're passing it on to you. So I want to make you aware of that. Okay, Exodus 20, I'm going to start at the beginning. We'll read the first five commandments, and then we're going to spend the entire time today talking about the sixth commandment. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. And rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. And made it holy. Honor your father and your mother. That your days may be long in the land. That the Lord your God is giving to you. And the sixth commandment is verse 13. You shall not murder. Let's pray. God we thank you for your word. And this weekend we freshly submit ourselves to your word as an act of worship we are here to hear from you and have you address our souls and I pray that you would speak clearly to us today about this commandment I pray that you would um, reveal your holiness and your grace to us and I pray most of all that you would uh, reveal the Lord Jesus Christ to us as we gather today and his work of the gospel. So Spirit of God, we invite you to come and address us, encourage us, correct us, strengthen us. Just do your work in our midst, Lord. We just submit ourselves to you 
And I, I pray that we would be alert as well, Lord. It's, it's easy on a holiday weekend for our minds to be distracted. So we ask you to call our minds and our hearts to attention before your word. In Jesus' name, amen. My, my guess is this is the most popular of the Ten Commandments in America. I, I mean, there'd be other commandments that people might not be in favor of, but everybody's in favor of the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. You can interview a Christian, uh, you can interview a liberal Christian, a conservative Christian, a Roman Catholic, a Protestant, a Muslim, a Jew, an atheist, um, you can interview anyone in our country and everybody's generally in support of this commandment. Uh, there's no one seeking to repeal the laws that forbid murder, as far as I'm aware. No one's opposed to that. And the other reason I think it's a popular command is not only everyone in support of it, but most everyone assumes they've kept it perfectly. I mean, every, most people uh, assume that they have kept this command, that they have not uh, committed homicide. And so because of that, we tend to like rules that we have managed well on. We tend to like rules where we get an A+. We tend to like tests that we pass with flying colors and get an A+. And we're all in favor of those kinds of tests. So my hunch is that this, of everyone we will, we will cover, that this would be culturally, not only in America, probably in the world, but certainly in our culture, this would be one that we could get an amen from everybody on shall not murder. Not only have most of us feel like we've never committed this uh, sin, most of us probably don't even know anyone who has. And most of us in the room, I mean, this could seem like maybe this needs to be a pretty short sermon because probably no one in the room's committed homicide. Someone may have, I don't know, but probably most people have not only committed that, but have never interacted with someone who's committed homicide. I, I knowingly have only interacted with one person who committed homicide. That, I, I mean, I, I've only, may have interacted with more, but as far as I know, and as far as I can remember, only one. It was an interesting encounter. I was about 20 years old, and I spent the summer um, when I was 20 year old, years old in the country of Panama uh, doing mission work. And um, I was walking around in a small town with a group, but I was by myself. I don't know why, but we were with a group in this small town, in this town square in a rural area of Panama, and, uh, and I was just walking around, and I heard somebody say, do you speak English? And no one spoke English around there, and I didn't speak much Spanish. I'm not quite sure where I was on a mission trip where you had to speak Spanish, and I didn't, but that's, <laughs> didn't read the instructions. But anyway, so I heard somebody say, do you speak English, which wouldn't have been unusual in Panama City, but would be very unusual in a rural area. And I looked down, and there was a guy on his hands and knees painting a crosswalk. And so I walked over to him, and as I did guys with rifles walked up to me, and I was like, whoa, they were guards, and he said something to them in Spanish, and they stepped back, and he said, I can talk to you, um, I'm a prisoner, and uh, I'm just doing work here, so I said, oh, is that right, and so we got to talking, and I got down on my knees and talked with him, and as we talked, uh, he began to tell me his story, that he had murdered a man who had committed adultery with his wife, so somebody had been with his wife, and he killed the guy, and was in prison, in Panama and was talking to me. So I thought, what an opportunity. This guy speaks English. So I was able to share the gospel with this guy. And what was so amazing was he very clearly, we didn't have to spend long at all talking about sin. 
and guilt of sin. He realized he was a sinner and was broken for his sin, regretted what he has done, and knew that God was holy and that he was sinful, and the civil authority knew he was sinful as well. And they had guns and were watching him paint a crosswalk as service work. And um, so ultimately he received the Lord. And I had an opportunity to go back uh, by myself to some rural area. I don't even remember. Some got on some bus, went to some rural area to a Panamanian prison, 20 years old, fulfilling all of my mom's greatest fears and um, interacted with this guy later, and he was really saved. He was forcing other prisoners to read the Bible. I had to explain to him, we don't really have an enforced evangelism policy. This is not how it works, but it was amazing. And, And what I noticed about this guy was that, his name was Anthony, that he didn't have to be convinced of his sin. Whereas in our country, if you share the gospel with someone, and are they sinful, and do they need a savior, most would say, well, I'm pretty good. I, I mean, I guess I've, I've never killed anyone or anything. And, and the reality is, as we look at this scripture and as we look at some other texts of scripture that deal with this, the, the, the typical American idea that I'm pretty good, I've never killed anyone versus Anthony, who murdered a man in cold blood and was in prison for it, we're much closer to him than we are over here. I'm pretty good before a holy God. I've never killed anyone. So we're going to look at this scripture and see what it has to say about that, and we're going to look at some other texts as well. First of all, what is forbidden by this scripture? There is so much that could be talked about in what I'm going to say in the next five minutes. um, There are entire Christian ethics classes that would spend a semester or could spend a semester on what I'm going to say in five minutes. But basically, what is forbidden here is unlawful killing. The commandment is only two words in Hebrew, no killing. That's the commandment. Now, there are eight different Hebrew words for killing. And the one that is used here in this passage, and which was translated killing in the King James Version, thou shalt not kill, um, that, that word is never used when God puts someone to death in the Scripture. It's never used when someone is executed for a capital offense in the Scripture. It's never used when uh, someone is killed in the context of war in Scripture. This particular word is never used when an animal is killed, either. It is used for unlawful killing of a human, and that's why the word is translated murder. That would be probably the best translation of what is in view here. Ethically, there are circumstances where taking a life could be lawful or is permissible, Um, and, and the scripture addresses that as well. For instance, capital punishment. We read a passage last week about uh, a, a crime that required the stoning of an individual under a theocracy. That is where God ruled over his people, um, the Hebrew people. He uh, not only permitted but required capital punishment in certain instances. And in the New Testament, Romans 13 tells us that we are subject to the civil civil governing authorities who are ordained by God to punish evil, and they bear the sword. Um, So the scripture says that some civil authorities will use the sword uh, for the purpose of execution, and we are to be in subject to civil government. God gives the sword to the civil government, not to the church, um, but to the civil government. So, capital punishment. Another instance where taking a life could be lawful and indeed could be an appropriate thing would be in what is typically called a law and order circumstance where in the midst of committing a crime or in the midst of endangering life with a a viable threat to take human life 
a, someone who bears the sword, a police officer, for instance, uh, kills someone in the act of them committing a crime where they're seeking to kill someone else. That would be permissible. Self-defense, uh, when personal life is endangered. So when personal life is endangered, we could defend ourselves um, by killing. And also in a just war context. Um, so in the midst of fighting a just war, killing is permissible as well. So there are certain instances where, where again, where killing's allowed, but what is forbidden here is the unlawful taking of a life. And we all know that the unlawful taking of a life is a significant sin. Everyone knows that. As a matter of fact, most would read the Ten Commandments and say that's the biggie. That's probably the most significant one because there's a finality to it. A finality. There's, there's not an opportunity to, um, to restore what's taken in this context because it is final. So we tend to know it's big. And even even those who don't believe in the scripture or have the law have it written on their heart and they know this is significant. But why? Why is murder so significant? Well, the scripture tells us in another location in the book of Genesis, Genesis 9, verse 6. Genesis 9, verse 6. This is what the scripture says. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man, his blood shall, be, shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. If someone takes a life, their life should be taken. Why? Because, this is the reason, because God made man in his own image. See, what, what God communicates is the reason it is wrong to take a life is because that life is created in the image of God. Humans are unlike any other part of God's created order. Humans are unique. Why? Because we are created in the image of God. Christian and non-Christian humans are created, everyone is created in the image of God. That is, we are personal. Unlike the plant and animal kingdom, we are personal. We have the ability to reason like God. We have the ability to communicate. We're in God's image. We are communicative creatures. We have been given by God dominion over the environment. We are sort of vice regents with God over his created order. And so we are to rule the creation under his authority. We have moral characteristics. A tree doesn't know the difference between right and wrong, but we even innately Even innately, people know this is wrong to murder. So we have the ability, capacity to know right from wrong. We we have a soul. We have an inner person and we live eternally. See, that's what it means to be created in the image of God. We think, we reason, we know right and wrong. We are eternal. Not eternal in that we don't have a beginning, but we live eternally in the sense that we don't have an ending would be a better way to say it. So nothing is more precious than human life because human, humans are in the image of God. That's what he says. God himself ordains life. He gives life. He creates life. And God, so, and he stamps in human life his own image. Life is a gift from God. 
God gives, God ordains. We do not have the right to unlawfully, inappropriately kill someone else. See, human life is unique in all of the creation, and we know this. Subjectively, we know this. About 20 years ago, I had two first-time experiences, both having to do with God's creation and both reflecting the glory of God in his creation. The first was I went to the Grand Canyon. I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. But standing over the Grand Canyon and looking into it and leaning, no, I didn't do that, but don't do that, but looking into the Grand Canyon, it it is an amazing experience where you look at Earth, a section of Earth, something created by God, and it's overwhelming. If you've ever been there, it can almost be metaphorically breathtaking to look at the Grand Canyon and see and consider the vastness of God. About 20 years ago also, a little more than that, I not only witnessed the creation of the Grand Canyon, but I witnessed the birth of my first child. And that, all four births, were breathtaking as well. But anyone in those two instances knows there's something categorically different. Relatively speaking, one is a big hole in the ground and one is life. With the capacity to think and live and judge and respond and worship God intelligently. It's amazing to be at the birth of a child and say, this is the work of God. Only God ordained this life. Only God gives this life. And thus, no one is free to take what God has given and end life. So how do we violate this command? Well, I mean, there's probably a number of ways. Here's three ways that this is violated. They all have side in them, so that's easy to remember. Homicide is the murdering of another person. Suicide is the taking of one's own life. We're not free to take our own lives as well, for God has ordained life and God um, determines the end of life. A third and most common way would be feticide, which is putting to death an unborn child. Abortion. Killing the unborn is actually covered in the next chapter. You can read it later, but in the next chapter, in chapter 21, uh, God prescribes what should happen if someone attacks a pregnant woman, and if the fetus dies, it is life for life. So the fetus has the same right to life that the woman does under God's standards in the next chapter. Um, I have provided an article, this is all I'm going to say on this topic for right now, but I've provided an article on the way out by John Piper, a pastor from Minnesota and an author, if you're unfamiliar with him. Just an article that anyone in the church can pick up, it's, it's just 10 reasons it's unlawful to take the life of the unborn. Um, and so you could pick that up if you'd like to on the way out. Also on the way out, I've provided, again, a family, two family devotions. So if you'd like to grab one of those to lead your family uh, in devotions about the response to this commandment of murder, uh, you may do so. And the article would be really helpful because um, there are questions and dialogue, if you choose to do so, about the theme of abortion in one of the, um, uh, in one of the uh, devotions. So... 
that might be a help. Both of the, anybody can get the Piper article uh, if you are a dad, a single mom, or whoever, uh, and you lead uh, devotions with your family. You, anybody can grab, uh, parents can grab that one. So that is what is forbidden, the taking of human life. What is required? We've looked in each commandment and talked about each command forbids something, and it also implicitly, at least, requires something. Well, God creates us in his image, and thus life is precious. He's the giver of life. So a positive response to this command would be to preserve the life of others. We must do everything in our power to preserve the health and the welfare of our neighbor. It is caring for neighbor. It is promoting life in every way we can. And that begins by elevating our view of life elevating our understanding and appreciation of life, that life is sacred, that life is not cheap, that life is the gift of God. And so we certainly want to consider that, the sacredness of life. So how can we positively respond to this command at a literal level? In other words, am I okay if I just don't kill people? Am I okay? Well, I think there are much more that we can do than just avoid that. So by prayer, care, and concern, for instance, for the sick, is a promoting of life. When we serve the sick, help the sick, care for the sick, that is a promotion of life. I think that would be a response to this command. Uh, Mercy ministries, where we can participate or make contributions to participate in the feeding and clothing of those who are without and who are needy, especially in context where that feeding and clothing saves their lives, that that would be a positive response to this command. Caring for those in need. Listen, our culture often devalues life as a person gets older. Our culture often devalues the life of the elderly. So, When Shane and Vivian, I'm assuming they're going this Sunday, they go every Sunday I'm aware of, and whoever else goes with them after the service over to Rambling Oaks Assisted Living Center and does a church service for the elderly who live in that home, which happens every Sunday, that is a promotion of valuing of life that is often devalued and unappreciated in our culture. They are going to the the older those whose lives sometimes are near their end, and they are preaching the gospel, loving, giving attention, caring for them. I think that would be a positive response in in response to something like this. Being civilly responsible would be one as well. To pray and to support legislation, to use your vote in the political process, as it were, to promote and protect life in our country, and that that covers all kinds of categories, that would be a way. Um, Boy, I'm throwing out all kinds of things that could be a seminar, so I'm going to give you two sentences that we could spend hours on. Entertainment choices, what we choose to watch and be entertained by in film, and or, or video games that we choose to play, or such like that, computer games, whatever it would be. Um, In that, is there a loving and a promoting of life or is there a gratuitous celebration of unlawful killing uh, without resolution or moral attached to it, we might say? 
So how do I entertain myself? So what, what is entertaining? How do I care for those in need? How do I provide for those to help them live? How do I value life? How, how can I act in a way that would protect the lives of the elderly or the unborn? How can I do good to my neighbor to help those who would be sick and infirm? All of those are categories which each could have all kinds of responses that we could respond in a positive way to God's value of life, God's gift of life, the sacredness of life. Each week we've looked at what the command forbids and what the command implicitly requires, sometimes explicitly requires. But we've also looked at Jesus and Jesus' fulfillment of the commandment and Jesus' teaching regarding the commandment. And on this command in particular, Jesus addresses this commandment. He, He actually teaches about this commandment uh, in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can turn there if you'd like. I'm going to look at, I'm going to read three verses. But in Matthew, chapter 5, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus addresses the topic of murder, but he does so a little differently. He addresses the heart behind murder. He addresses the heart behind murder committing murder. And this is what he says. Verse 21 of chapter 5 of Matthew. Give you a second to turn there. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. We have heard. We just read that. So he's talking about the Ten Commandments. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus opens this up and says, you are familiar with the commandment not to murder, But I say to you, Jesus is fully God and fully man and has the authority to apply and interpret God's old covenant which is ultimately fulfilled in him. So he's not bringing an opposing teaching. He's bringing a deeper application to the commandment of murder. And he basically says, you've heard that the the one who murders will be liable to judgment, but I'm saying that everyone who is angry with someone else is liable to judgment as well. Now, obviously, the external circumstances of homicide and and anger that is just in word and not in deed, obviously, the the fruit of those two sins is, is different. One ends a life, one harms a person but doesn't end their life. So, obviously, the consequences and the civil uh, consequences are different as well. Understandably, but what he's saying is that that anger in the heart before God is a uh, an offense, and judgment will come upon anger. And anger, in essence, is the heart that leads to murder. So he's saying, if you are angry with your brother, you have committed murder. You'll be subject to judgment. He says, if you have insulted another person, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother, verse 22, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother 
will be liable to the council. It's a parallel statement about judgment. Now, there can be good-hearted, fun, insulting. It doesn't mean that when guys get together that you can't have some, um, some fun and ultimately we should poke fun at ourselves. Self-deprecating humor is probably the best. But it doesn't mean a light-hearted pull in someone's leg, give them a hard time. He's not talking about that. He's talking about something in the context of anger, an insult with intent to harm, we might say. So he's saying, your judgment, if you insult others, your, your judgment, and then you'll be judged. And then he says, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell. Now, he's not making the word fool um, sort of the equivalent of what we talked about in the third commandment, cursing God. He's not making just that word. If you say that word, you will go to hell. I just said that word. Uh, and, and the Bible uses that word. There's an intent behind what he means to call someone a fool here. In in a biblical sense, the fool is not someone who's stupid or goofy or clowns around and is foolish and don't act foolish in that way by someone who's kind of clowning. The fool, that that is a moral statement. Psalm 14, the first verse says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. The fool is the person that defies God to such a level that he denies his existence. He denies his accountability to God. He denies the holiness of God and the judgment of God and can say, there is no God. And Psalm 14, 1 says, you're a fool if you say that. The book of Proverbs defines the fool as the person who is morally corrupt because they act in a way as if there are no consequences, no judgment, no accountability, there is, we could say it this way, no fear of God. The fool is the person who does not fear a holy God, who is not concerned about God. So to call someone a fool in this way, it's not when your kid picks up a pillow and tosses it, knocks the lamp over, and you say, you fool, and you're in danger of hellfire. That means you did a stupid thing. Don't do that. That's what that means. What this means is when you are making a moral judgment and assessment and you would term someone a fool in the biblical sense, not in a redemptive way, not when you say, don't act like a biblical fool, come to Jesus, that's appropriate, but where you judge them, assess them in a moral type sense of way with anger, with defiance, with self-righteousness. So he's saying, how you respond to other with angers, with anger, with insults, with judgment over their character, that is murderous, is what Jesus says. See, here's the common perception. The common perception is, or the common cultural perception <clears throat> is that the God of the Old Testament is this really mean guy that kills people, that gets people in the Red Sea and floods them, that pours out plagues, that judges, that has lightning like in the Ten Commandments, shows up in the mountain, rocks, and, and, and fire comes down. And it's this untouchable holy God. That, that is the, the impression of people is that God is sort of angry and mad and distant and you better watch out because He's after you in the Old Testament. And then the impression is that in the New Testament, gentle Jesus, meek and mild comes and sort of gives everybody just like a corporate big hug and said it's going to be okay. Let's just love 
and everything is fine. The stuff about holiness and all of that, I'm, I'm here to just talk about peace and love and everybody's going to be great. And so the culture respects Jesus for that. That caricature could not be more false. Because Jesus takes the law of God here and says, you remember when the mountain was shaking and fire was on the mountain and God was speaking and all the people were trembling so much they couldn't even come close to the mountain? You remember that? And God said as part of that, you shall not murder? Well, here's what I'm going to say to you. It's way worse than you thought. If you've been angry, you've murdered. Jesus doesn't... He's not a kinder, gentler, softer God. He is the same God, Father, Son, and Spirit, bringing the force of the law here. And He is communicating the seriousness of our thoughts and our words and our actions before a holy God. He doesn't soften the law. It's not like Jesus comes in and says, wow, God said everybody has to jump this high. Nobody can do that. It's really hard. So I'm going to lower it here. Come on, everybody can jump over. I've lowered the standard. Everybody can cross this bar. No, he takes it from perceptively here and raises it not where it's doable, but where it's impossible. Jesus comes and he takes the law and he doesn't say everybody's okay. He says it's impossible. Because every time you've been mad at your spouse, you've been a murderer in your heart. Every time you've yelled at the kids, you've been a murderer in your heart. Every time someone's cut you off in traffic and you yelled an insult out, or if the kids were in the car, you maybe just thought the insult, you've murdered. Every time you judged someone's character self-righteously without loving them in a redemptive way, Jesus said, You've committed murder. Even when you didn't use words, but in your heart, you were so angry that you just closed up and you gave an icy cold stare. If looks could kill, they do. That's, what, that's the truth of Scripture. They do. Before a holy God of the universe... Looks kill. Every time you've hated someone, this is what 1 John 3.15 says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. I'm going to read that again. I didn't make that up. That's not my interpretation. That's not a really good sermon illustration that I want to... That's the Word of God. So it is actually a very good illustration of the point, but here it is. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. I'm a pretty good person. Well, I mean, at least I've never killed anyone. That category. God would say, no, no one's in that category. Everyone's in this category of guilty. Of guilty. It's not a manageable standard. It is an impossible standard. Under the eyes of the civil government, you may have never committed homicide. Please don't. That is good. The the scripture forbids this. The law forbids that. But before the eyes of a holy God, you have murdered. What would you say have? Many of us are murdering right now. 
with bitterness and unforgiveness and anger and uh, unreconci- uh, lack of reconciliation with others. I mean, many of us are sitting here right now. S- some of us have had murderous thoughts in this meeting about someone else. A murderer in our hearts. So here Jesus takes the law and he doesn't make it doable. He reveals that it's impossible. Why? Because he is loving. Because he doesn't want people to think they've obeyed God ultimately so they're okay with God. He wants everybody to realize they need a Savior. And so he's using the law as a way that comes to us and convicts us and says, you're not okay. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not okay. You're not managing. You're not getting brownie points because you've never literally pulled the trigger. It's not like you're okay with God because one day you'll stand before him and and, and say, "I, I I never beat anyone physically to death. You'll stand before him and this evaluation will be given. Jesus says, I say to you, if anyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment, that means guilty. And so Jesus tells us this so that we will see our need and we would say before God, then who can be right with you? Because I can't keep that law. And the truth is that Jesus came and he kept that law for us. He obeyed that law in our place and Jesus died in our place. The reason Jesus dies on the cross is because you and I have offended a holy God. We're separate from God and Jesus dies and he takes the penalty. He takes the penalty. He dies in our place. Remember the scripture we read? If someone takes blood, their blood must be shed. Well, you've taken blood metaphorically, and his blood was shed for you and for me. The penalty for murder is death. The penalty for sin is eternal death in hell. And Jesus comes, and he dies in our place. And the Bible says that while he is on the cross, he who knew no sin came to be sin for us. God the Father pours out his judgment and wrath on murderers. That is, angry people, hateful people, uh, slanderous people, insulting people, people who judge others unbiblically in an angry fashion. And Jesus dies for those sins. And then he's raised on the third day and comes back to life. So now you can have all your murders forgiven. You may have come in here today and said, I don't, what do you mean? I don't have any murders forgiven. But under Jesus' standard, which is truth, and he is the one who sets the standard for judgment, under his standard of judgment, we have many murders, and some of us have committed murder Uh, metaphorically speaking, here today. And Jesus dies to forgive. So you can come to Christ and you can say, forgive me for my sins. I want to leave all my sins behind. I want to come to you, Jesus. I want to live for you. I want to please you. I want to serve you. Forgive me for my sins. I believe you died for me. And if you put faith in what he did for you and turn to him, he will forgive your sins and he will pay the penalty that you deserve to pay. And you'll be free, forgiven, welcomed before God, treated as if, someone, as, as, as if you had never sinned because you're forgiven of your sin and because Jesus gave his life in your place. See, Jesus is showing us our need for a Savior here. And the good news is once we receive a Savior, the Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. You're, you're given new life. You're born all over again spiritually The Holy Spirit, the presence of God, gives you new life. And then immediately, here's what he starts doing. He starts changing you, little by little. Sometimes it's dramatic at first, but ultimately, it's little by little the Holy Spirit changes us. 
And you know what he does? He begins to enable us to obey what Jesus is talking about here. So that we, he, he empowers us to begin to love others instead of being angry with others. And he empowers us to begin to do what Jesus' commandment requires. If anger and destructive words are forbidden, what is Jesus requiring here ultimately? Well, he's requiring love for others. Don't be angry to others. Love them. Don't use your words to kill them. Like you, we, we, we talk this way. His words were like daggers, right? That, there's a lot more truth to that. The looks can kill and words like daggers and all that. I mean, that, that's really accurate. And so Jesus enables us not to use our words as daggers, but to use our words as something that is refreshing, like water to someone in a desert, something that is refreshing. So we can use our speech for encouragement. We can use our speech for forgiveness. We can use our speech to bless others, to express gratitude to others, to have faith towards God on behalf of others, to express words of humility, words of peace, even words of correction. Even words of correction. But they're shared in a way that is redemptive and loving and wanting the best for the other person so that we can actually correct someone. We can actually rebuke someone. We could even uh, come and, and, and to someone else adjust, bring a word of adjustment to them. But the motive is not, you fool, uh, insulting, anger. The motive is, I love you and want, want what's best for you. Those are words of life. That's a good way to say it. Words of death versus words of life. How do we obey this? We act in a way, Exodus 20, we act in a way that preserves, promotes, cares for the sacredness of physical life. And how do we obey what Jesus talks about here? We use our words in a way that are not motivated by envy, jealousy, retribution, but we use our words in a way that are to promote encouragement, to build up, to promote spiritual life, preaching the gospel, telling people that are spiritually dead the good news of Jesus is a way to fulfill this. Those are words of life. Words that are the very opposite of eternal death. Words that bring eternal life. How do I not be a murderer in my heart? I give words of life, and if they're to lost people, words of eternal life. That's how we ultimately fulfill this command. The Heidelberg Catechism does a really good job uh, expressing this with a couple of questions and answers that I want to read to you uh, that I think are most helpful with regard to this. Heidelberg Catechism, question 106, says this. Does this commandment refer only to killing? Talking about Exodus 20, here's the answer. By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, Hatred, anger, vindictiveness, in God's sight, all such are murder. It's very well said, very, very helpful. Here's question 107. Question 107 says this. Is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? The answer, no. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. To be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly to them. To protect them from harm as much as we can. And to do good even to our enemies. Can you leave that up a second, Donnie? To do good even to our enemies. This is a 
they weren't intending it as such. But this is a wonderful description of the Lord Jesus, is it not? Patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, friendly to protect others from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. That's the work of Jesus Christ. We were His enemy. If you've trusted Him, you've now become His friend. And now He's filled you with His Spirit, and He's called you to a mission. He sent you on mission in your life, starting with those closest to you, your family, um, your spiritual family, the church, other people that you know, Christians that you know elsewhere, your extended family, those who don't know the Lord in the marketplace, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, wherever it would be, that God has called you on a mission not to just walk through your life avoiding killing people, not to just say, if you can make it to the end of your life without ever committing homicide, you're okay, but something much more glorious, to say, I'm a murderer at heart. Lord Jesus, help me to be one who values life physically and acts accordingly and values life spiritually and acts accordingly, that I might be a life giver to others because you have given life to me. And and the beauty is that whatever you've done, God is a forgiving God. There are people in the room who have significant issues with anger, where your life has been dominated by anger. Jesus Christ desires to free you from that so that you can extend forgiveness to that person you're angry to and cease to be a murderer, but actually love your enemy. Bless the person who's acting like an enemy. Jesus wants to work in your life. I want you to have a vision that God could do that in you. Some, there, there are those in the room who, in their past, perhaps have had an abortion or a guy who's been supportive of one, party to one, funded one. of a a child that you created with a woman. There is forgiveness. Jesus Christ wants to take that and wants to bring life in that situation so that you experience the forgiveness of God. And would it be that God would even use you so that you don't live with this dark secret in the closet, but so that you could be used by Him to minister? I don't know, to, to maybe... Uh, women in situations with unwanted pregnancies or to serve in a crisis pregnancy center or to pray or to somehow be a a blessing of life or to serve in the nursery with children. I don't know what it would be where you would say, not only am I freely forgiven for the sin I committed, but I'm empowered by God to now act in a way as a new person that's bringing life and encouragement and help and even rescue to others. God doesn't want us to just get by. God wants us to see how serious our sin is. But then he wants to redeem that, rescue that, give us new life, and turn us loose as a people to promote and celebrate and honor life. Because God is the giver of life. And every human is created in his image so that they may know him and glorify the God who has created them. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit gracechurchfrisco.org.